All right, before we begin, I want to let you know that my novel, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight, is out in paperback. Who needs a clunky hardback when you can have a handy, flimsy, very portable paperback version uh, of the books that you love? So anyway, get it where you can get it, which is your local indie bookseller. They will order it for you happily. You don't need to keep sending Jeff Bezos into space. Amazon doesn't need your money. But hey, if that's where you're going to order it from, who am I to stop you? The novel is about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders one particularly bloody summer in San Francisco. It's like a Beach Boys song, but with blood. Uh, It is for young adults, but I'm hearing from adults uh, that they're enjoying it as well. So, you know, you can buy it for your teenager and read it when they're done. Thank you, by the way, for your support. I really appreciate it. Let's get to the show. My guest today on the program, well, if they move back to California, we're going to play some tennis. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of Bonnie Hayes and the Wild Combo, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Bonnie Hayes. Let me tell you a little bit about Bonnie Hayes and the Wild Combo. You know, I still can't get my head around the idea that Bonnie Hayes is not in California, because growing up in the Bay Area, she was everywhere. Her family moved to San Francisco from the San Joaquin Valley in the early 70s, and it didn't take long for her to establish herself as a commanding musical presence. Her new wave band, The Punts, became Wild Combo, and they signed with Slash and put out the Good Clean Fun record. By the way, Slash was about as cool as it got. They had the Violent Femmes, Fear, The Germs, The Gun Club, and The Blasters. Now, the song you just heard, Girls Like Me, you might remember from the movie Valley Girl, and that got the band a lot of attention. Hayes followed that up pretty quickly with the brand new Girl EP, which contains one of my favorite songs, Night Baseball, and she and the Wild Combo toured with Huey Lewis, whose guitarist was also Bonnie's brother Chris. Then, in 1987, she put out the Some Guys album. I mean, she pretty much tore through the 80s and just crushed it. But she wasn't done yet. She became a part of Belinda Carlisle's band for her world tour, and then, and this is how you finish a decade, Bonnie Raitt, in 1989, 
recorded two of Bonnie's songs, Love Letter and Have a Heart, both for her Nick of Time album. In 91, Bonnie Hayes was part of Billy Idol's band for the almost two-year-long Cradle of Love tour, and along the way, her songs were recorded by Cher, Bette Midler, Natalie Cole, Adam Ant, Robert Cray, and David Crosby. Not too shabby. She put a few more albums out, including Empty Sky and Love in the Ruins, both excellent, and she taught at the Berklee College of Music, the Stanford Jazz Workshop, the REO Songwriting Retreat outside of Vancouver, B.C., the ASCAP Workshops in L.A., and at the WCS Conference at Foothill College. In 2013, Hayes became chair of the Songwriting Department at Berkeley, and that's where she's been. A compelling and dynamic singer and an intuitive and brilliant songwriter, Bonnie Hayes is a fascinating and very cool person. And yes, she said if she moves back to Marin, we're going to play some tennis. In fact, maybe we'll record the next podcast outside on the tennis courts. In the meantime, let's do the indoor conversation before we get to that. Here's me and Bonnie Hayes having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. In January, I gave notice at Berkeley and I was going to move back to the Bay Area and open a satellite of the Blue Bear School in Albany. And, you know, we had it all set. We had the funding. I was, so I gave notice. I scheduled movers. I gave notice at my apartment. And then this happened. And, you know, I was going to move back into my house, but I couldn't evict my team. You know, I can't like kick people out of my house in the middle of a pandemic. And plus, Blue Bear has been sort of struggling just like all schools and, you know, so I basically ended up staying here. So I moved into this cute little apartment and it's just been this, like my, my life just flipped, you know? Um, so I'm here, I'm sitting here all day long in this little studio guy, you know, like basically. It's adorable. Yeah. It's very cute. I mean, actually right here is all my, you know, my gear. Um, so yeah. you can't really see it, but yeah, no, it's, and then I just teach all day. I, I, have, I sit here. I call it Zoom butt. <laughs> I sit here. I do, you can see my yoga mat back there. For the oh, yeah. I do yoga. And um, I take a heavy-duty, long, hard walk every morning and just kind of live in it, you know? Well, how does it work where you give notice and then do you sort of give unnotice? Like, how does that well, work? Well, I went back to – I mean, so it was funny because I, I called my boss and I said – Hey, uh, you know, I want to I want to talk to you about something. And he said, "Well, I hope you're telling me that you're staying." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, is it okay?" And he was like, "We we, we they froze hiring." Um and so, you know, it was just like one of those situations where it worked out really well. Um so now um, and you know, now it's kind of like I don't have anything to go back to. Like part of the reason I was moving back was I had a job there. Mm. That was sort of, it was like a step down from this. So it was kind of like one of those, I can still work, but I'm not going to be 
this is really intense, this job, right? I mean, it's like, a, you know, I have just constant freaking meetings and, you know, like this is my like daily to-do list, you know? Oh my God. So, oh yeah. It's freaking crazy. I get a hundred emails a day minimum, you know? And so I basically just was like hoping to kind of start to calm down a little bit, but um, I'm not really a very calm person. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, just hang out, uh, do your job, find a way to do it this way. And, you know, so I'm going to stay, I think I, I've committed to stay for another, at least through summer of 2022. And then I'll reassess. I would really love to get back to the Bay Area. I really, really miss it. But I mean, I, I also started to really like Boston after five years here, six years here, I started getting it. Have you ever lived here? I have not lived in the East. I'm such a Bay Area guy. I've never lived in the East Coast. I'm, I was yeah. raised by East Coast people. <laughs> well, so you know a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hardcore, you know, like there's no quarter given. Nobody's nice here, you know. I mean, they're only, <laughs> they're nice if they have to be, but basically it's it's like, fuck you, you know, why are you walking toward me? And I'm like, because I exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we do it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, everybody on this, it's just that edge, you know, that, that mean Boston thing. But when you get down to it, they start to actually, I don't know. Now I have friends, right? So it's different that the, when I moved here, I was like, God, these people are insane. I mean, everybody's spoiling for a fight, you know? Since the sensibility is different. The California sensibility is um, not like that at all. We're not, we're not confrontational. I don't think in that. No, in we're that I mean, you do have your road rage situation out there, but but everything else, I mean, everybody's super polite and nice. It kind of reminds me of the South, though. People are real nice, and then they just diss the fuck out of you behind your back, you know? So <laughs> you're sort of like, okay, <laughs> which one do I prefer? I don't know. People are yeah. rough, you know? But my, my friend from Chicago who went to school with me out here in California, he said, but Californians are weird. He said, they're, they're so nice. Like with, when you're a complete stranger, they're so nice to you that within five minutes of meeting them, they've invited you to their wedding. Right. And you don't, then you don't hear from them for 10 years. Right. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's really true. Like you do get invited to a party immediately. Immediately. And then, and then it's sort of like they just, I mean, most people have really big circles of friends. At least that's my experience. But of course I was raised in San Francisco. I mean, I, I, we moved to San Francisco when I was um, 16 and I essentially lived there except for my uh, LA stint. I lived there since I was 16, you know, until I moved here. So I lived in the, I never lived in the East Bay. You live in the, do you live in the East Bay or do you live yeah, in I'm the in, So city? I'm in Walnut, I'm in Walnut Creek. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, cause you were, you were born in not. I was born in Seattle. You were born in Seattle. You're a Washington. But um, yeah, but we moved, we moved to San Francisco in uh, 1970, which was like, could you think of a better year to move to San Francisco? I'm yeah. pretty sure there isn't a better year. Um, and it was, I mean, finishing high school there, starting to play music there. It was glorious, you know, glorious. What a time. What a time. Oh my God. I, I, we, we, I was transformed and, you know, I come from a family of, of seven kids and, and half of us, I mean, we all started going to Blue Bear and literally our lives, the trajectory of our lives was transformed forever, you know? 
Um, and I mean, just thinking about it now, it just kind of gives me goosebumps that imagining because we we had been living with our with our parents in Visalia, mm. which is like that that Sacramento vibe, just farther south. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like farmers and um, you know a lot of it's a lot of conservative businessmen and stuff like that. Yeah. Down there. So um, so we moved to San Francisco, and all of a sudden we weren't weirdos anymore. Like we belonged, right? We belonged to the to the world because San Francisco presented a, a bubble of the world that was just like us. I mean, it was wild, you know. Well, it was a haven for artists and freaks and weirdos and and outcasts, like people people that I feel most comfortable around. Because um, I've always considered myself to be of that as well. And but now, it, you know, those people are gone because they can't afford to. No, you can't afford to. I could, I went. I moved back from LA and was like, I'm gonna buy a house in the city. Right? Couldn't do it. That was that was uh, in 1998. I couldn't oh, wow. afford a house in the city. I I bought a house in Marin County. Right, but because it was still cheaper there, <laughs> now it's not, not anymore. Not not anymore. But it's about yeah. the same actually. I mean, San Francisco's. But it was, it's always been out of reach for me in terms of owning a house the whole time. It was just that hundred grand more than I could come up with at the time, you know, even though I did really well at various points, it was like, I just couldn't quite catch up with the San Francisco real estate market. No. And now what it is, I'm originally from Marin and we moved out to the East Bay when I was a kid, but now, and I was keeping an eye on real estate, like, okay, I ever moved back there. And now it's basically so astronomically crazy that you it's, might make an offer on a house and someone will come in with a b- bag of cash. All cash offer. Yeah. All cash offer. I actually did make an offer on a house when I tried to move back. That was in like the outer, the outer mission. And it was scooped by a, a kid who came while I was there. He rolled up on a skateboard, dude. I'm not kidding you. And made an all cash offer that night. That's and so... That was really, so it was the beginning of that whole thing of the tech millionaires kind of taking, turning it into their bedroom community and destroy the club scene, destroy the, you know, I mean, everything just like, there's no vibe there at all. Now I go back there and I'm like, wow, this is like, it's like Singapore. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's it's like... (laughs) Next thing you know, they'll be finding you for spitting. <laughs> <laughs> there is no vibe. Now, I mean, the old days, I'll bet if you needed a guitar player, you could walk out your door and, and ask anybody. Now, if you need a UX designer, that you can find them you know, walking down the street. But that whole artistic community is gone. kind of gone. Yeah, yeah. And they went really- to Oakland, and now they're getting priced out of Oakland. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, horrible. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of going, I, I luckily still own my house in Marin, but I mean, and then you get to this point where you're just like, I could go live in, I don't know, name the place. I could go live in Louis, you know, New Orleans, right? Yeah. I could sell this house and live on the money <laughs> and buy a house in New Orleans, right? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of start going, is it really worth it to live in California? Well, yeah, and there's 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 obviously trade-offs. Well, well, when you thought about leaving, when you made the decision to leave Berkeley, uh, I mean, for many listeners right now who are hearing this, like that's sort of the apex of right of like musical theory and and academia combined with performance, and it's it's the zenith. What made you think 
I think I want to leave this. I've had, I've had enough of this. Like what was that? tough well, decision? I mean, look, you know, for, so until I came to Berkeley, I had never had a job since I was like 20 years old, right? I had a job at a restaurant when I was 20 years old. And I was like, that'll do nicely for the job thing. <laughs> and basically just went about creating a career for myself that was 100% freelance in which I was able to move back and forth between various skill areas based on demand and how bored I was. And, you know, as you can see, I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, I, I toured as a side person. I love being a side person. I toured as a lead, a band leader. I put out five records of my own. I got zillions of cuts for other people. I played keyboard on countless records. I produced countless records. I became a Pro Tools expert. So for me, it was just like, what skill do I need now? How do I get it? And I'm going to make, I'm going to figure out a way to make money that doesn't involve me having a boss, right? So I came to Berkeley partly because I had been in, in Marin County for, um, you know, at that point, 20 years, right? And um, really having fun, making great money, doing exactly what I wanted. But my daughter had graduated from high school, was going to college, and she was going to be you, right? So part of it was that that thing of like, well, Lily gets to jump off and go somewhere else. Maybe I will too. And by the way, maybe I'll go where she is. <laughs> so yeah. can you imagine what a freaking mom Mamocopter. I I wasn't. It wasn't a mamocopter thing, but I basically like. I look at it now, and I'm like a little bit helicoptery. But um, I mean, I happened to get a great job. So, and I was like, okay, this will be fun, right? Um, and so I came out here. I just really wanted something new. You know, I wanted something else to happen. And I was kind of worn out on writing songs. I had been, I'd been running my own studio at that point for nine years and doing all this producing. So. I just, I was just worn out, you know, on, on that. And now I'm worn out on this. So, I mean, it's a total flip, right? Um, I have not one boss. I have like 20 bosses, right? This is one of those middle management things where, you know, as a chair, I'm, in, I'm responsible for the curriculum. I manage about 26 people. Um, I, you know, and my form of leadership is like, let's all get together and like have a glass of wine and talk about it, right? I'm not a big boss lady, but um, I do. Um, I do love Berkeley. I, I, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with a school like this, you know. Um, just problems, mostly because of how expensive it is, and yeah. because it's in Boston, it's not where there are a lot of people who are working in the industry. So it's it's it it has this sort of division from the industry, which I think makes it feel like if your academia is this cloister, but the problem is pop music isn't a cloister, right? Pop music is a freaking business, and it's also the business of expression, which is like so so complex and and so like having a school that costs sixty thousand dollars a year to teach people how to do pop music or popular music is innately a struggle, right? It's just really, it's just really hard. Academia wants to hold still, right? Um, it wants to, this is our curriculum. This is what we do. And then the business is moving at light speed, right? I mean, we, we, we just start, you know, we basically, when I got here, we started requiring students in the major to take 
two technology courses, right? I mean, you got it. Now everybody has to be able to use technology, especially now. So that kind of stuff, I mean, that happened in five years. We went from, you know, I mean, just think about how fast things are moving. That's quick, yeah. It was really quick. The business has changed entirely in 10 years. The way that songwriters make money, 100% change, right? So like all of that stuff, just sort of trying to keep up with that. I mean, it's a lot, but it's been very engaging. I tell you, I know more about the music business than I did when I got here. That's for sure. And I know more people in the music business than I did when I got here. More A&Rs, more music supervisors, more, you know, big shots. <laughs> yeah. So... It's kind of, I mean, it's been really great. I, w- I wanted to leave because I wanted to get back to doing more music for myself. And um, there's also something that I love about teaching people who aren't trying to be professionals. Like, I like teaching people who write songs for love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like teaching people who would make music if they had to pay to do it. And so that for me is a, is a real joy and a pleasure having an insurance executive and a psychologist in my class who come home after work and write a beautiful song instead of watching TV or getting in a fight with their partner or whatever. So for me, there's this beauty in the way that people do music when it's not a career um, that I really love. Is it because there's more of a... um there's no agenda. There is just, there's more of a purity in the, in the, you're not creating product. You're not, you're not listening and going, how does this fit into the marketplace? I mean, I might make you do that, but, but the thing is, I think that there is a, there's a total purity in stopping caring whether, whether your music, I mean, I think we need to care about whether people, whether you're, what you're saying is what people are hearing right? Like that I think is probably important. Or if you're opening the door to a mystery, having the experience of the listener be the same mystery, right? Do you know what I mean? Like the same, if you're saying, look at this beautiful thing, you want the listener to go, what a beautiful thing. (laughs) And so I feel like that's the thing that we have to work on as writers is making that happen in a listener um, and making sure that what we're saying, what we're trying to do is getting done. But at the same time, that's you and one other person, you know, um, that thing of having to market it and having to, or you can make it in your bedroom for nobody. You can make it in your bedroom for you. And I mean, that's freaking what Elliot Smith did, you know, right. uh, and, and a lot of people, Bonnie Vare, you know, a lot of people start that way where they're just like, I did, you know? So I feel like that thing where the market, we're trying to make money from it, we're turning it into a career comes into play is a very confusing boundary for people. And it changes the way that they engage with the learning. Um, so that's, it's not that they're, one is better than the other. I love my students here so much. And I'm so, I am so in love with that, this age group. And when they decide to do something, how they just tear into it with this like rabid, wild passion, you know, but I also like, you know, I also like the people who are just doing their lives and then writing songs in the margin, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about Liz Fair and I was thinking about how her first two albums, um, The Girly Sounds and Exile were both, they weren't intended, they, they weren't meant for 
for the pop paradigm. They weren't, those are not business albums. And then the later work is, and, and it's not a criticism, but you can certainly hear how the intimacy of recording something which feels very private, those first two mm-hmm. albums feel very private. And they're also exploratory. I mean, she, that, yeah. that Exile in Guyville, she is matching song for song, right? Exile on Main Street, yeah, talking back. I mean, and then, you know, you hear her kind of exploring these, these kind of both lyric, like form, I, melodic ideas and guitar playing in that record. I mean, it's by far my favorite Liz Fair record. And I love Girly Sounds too. Um, yeah. So I, I couldn't agree more. There is this, I would, I would love, I mean, I'm, I've made music like that. Like my last record, Love in the Ruins, was that record that you make where you go, I don't fucking care what y'all think, you know? Um, and it was great. I mean, I wasn't, but I wasn't mad anymore. I didn't have that edge anymore. I mean, so it's really actually just a really fun record, you know, about what was happening for me at the time. But I definitely stopped trying to make, I lost my deal with Sony because of the first four of those songs that I wrote. And they were like, nah, this isn't going to work. And I was like, okay, bye. Oh, really? <laughs> but first I'll take that 40 grand you owe me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could you get that to my house pretty soon? <laughs> yeah, that was the deal. Are, are you, when, when in terms of thinking about how, when you got to Berkeley, you suddenly had to intellectualize the, the pop paradigm and also the idea of music becomes more of an intellectual thing, right? In ter- and also creativity becomes intellectualized as well because you're trying to explain it as right. a curriculum to students. And create situations where it can thrive, right? Exactly. And like I teach writing and I'm a writer and I, so I'm in the same situation as you. Was that a hard shift for you or was it an, e- was it an easy transition? So I'm an intellectual anyway. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I've always been a heavy reader. I love school. Like I really like learning. I, I went to college for fun, you know, the whole time that I was doing all this other stuff. So I have that real, I have a super analytical mind. Um, like what really got me going in, in music was when I learned my Richard Strauss taught me chords. And I remember somebody else showed me the circle of fifths and I was like, holy shit, so it makes sense. So there's like a logic to it. Like it's not just this random talent thing, right? And suddenly it all like clicked into place in terms of there's this, there's these patterns that that in physics, you know, create different feelings in the body, right? It's not an accident. <laughs> I mean, there's an accidental element to creativity, and especially like improvisation, that thing of like making a mistake and then repeating it and then exploring it. And I think that's like part of of the creative thing. But but for me, I was always pretty I was driven to understand what made something work. And that's how I started writing songs was like, I I basically tried to write a song or two and they sucked really bad. And I was like, but then I started like listening to songs and going, what are they doing that I'm not doing? Right. And sort of kind of exploring the, um, the differences and then trying that stuff in my own song. So I come from that world of like, because I was I don't think, I mean, some people just start writing songs and they write great songs. I I think of those people as what I call a natural. Those people also have more trouble adapting their work, you know, Um, and they don't, they often don't intellectualize it at all. So they have trouble revising, right? So you'll have a person who just goes, 
Neil Young is a great example of this kind of writer where it's just like, it comes out. Did you ever hear the interview where he he talks about, he writes the music and then as he's driving to the studio to cut the song, he drives really slow so he can write the lyrics (laughs) and sometimes he has to pull over. (laughs) Like he doesn't, he doesn't start with like a concept, you know, there's no, he just makes up words that fit into the music that he wrote and he doesn't revise. He doesn't fix them. If they, if they work great, if they don't work, I'll write another one. Right. And so I feel like there are people who can transit back and forth between those worlds, but for the most part, if it comes easy to you, it's harder for you then to develop in a, in an intentional way. So is that what you mean by adapt in terms of, Okay. Yeah. I mean, and partly that's bad. Like, like to me, like what happened to me as a songwriter was I started out with this just pure giddy joy of of being able to write songs that were, that were actually like what I wanted to hear. And that happened. And I, I wrote good, clean fun. Right. And I wrote a bunch of other stuff and then there started to be, so good, clean fun was the record wasn't successful, but the song, you know, we got on the Valley girls soundtrack and the band was really successful so then it was like, why aren't you, why don't you, why don't, why aren't you signed, right? That base, that whole thing of like, well, you should be doing better. I mean, the sub, it wasn't trying to make me ashamed, but it was kind of like, if you just wrote songs that were a little more fill in the blank, you could have more fans and make more money and be more successful, right? So as then, you know, there's this pressure to sort of go, oh, okay, all I have to do is like, write songs about more universal themes or make melodies that are simpler or, you know, whatever, you know, have fewer chords in my songs. So that's what I mean about adapting. And that, that pressure to adapt also just comes like, you can't make the same record over and over again, even if nobody cares what you do, it's like, you, you know, you get bored. Right. So there's that too. You have pressure from internal pressure to, to stop doing the same thing over and over again. So I don't think it's necessarily only the market. But I do think it's important for songwriters to grow and be influenced by outside external forces, right? Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear a song and I'll be like, oh my God, like that fucking song is so great. I can't believe that song exists. Why didn't I write that song? And <laughs> the next best thing is I'm going to write it now. And what that does is it kind of snakes me out of where I am into a, a new place, you know, and then I'll just follow that river of sort of discovery. And I think, I don't know, other, other songwriters don't do it that way, but I know a lot who do. So is it a mixture of, of intellectual curiosity and competitiveness as well? It's not really competitive. It's more like I'm so inspired. I mean, I will bow down. Okay. I will, I'll bow to Liz Fair. I'll get on my knees in front of Liz Fair. Okay. So like even, even white chocolate space egg, I'll get on my knees to her for, you know, because like she's a freaking badass. I'll bow to Chrissy Hyde. Right. I will. You know, when you take me off my railroad track of who I think I am, you are you are a person that I honor and respect. I don't I don't go. I'm gonna beat her. I go. Fuck. I want to like be in her girlfriend group. You know, <laughs> I I want to bond with her and never let her go because 
you know, she inspired me, right? So that's all yeah. I'm saying, you know, it's just being able to be inspired by somebody else, right? You seem like you keep up with what's going on, like the stuff you've name-checked. Like you seem like you really are constantly sort of keeping track of what's going on in the musical world. Um, is that is that an accurate thing to say? Well, I mean, I, I teach 18 to 21-year-olds, right? Yeah. So I can't be out here playing them, you know, my Sharia more, right? I mean, that's a great song and I'll play it when I need to, but that can't be what I'm giving kids because it feels irrelevant to them, right? right? So like I listen to the Billboard Hot 100. I usually get through like the top 30. I usually listen to about a minute to a minute and a half of each song and then fast forward. If I And then I also listen to a couple of indie pop kind of playlists and so because that's sort of bubbling under up and coming and then there's some folk indie folk stuff like phoebe bridgers kind of stuff yeah uh that i listen to um just because that's what the kids love you know but also i like i really like music <laughs> I, I even i mean i have some indie hip-hop i listen to so i just sort of will get in a mood and go after something. Um, and like, you can see that I'm super interested in still in music and also in the markets, but left to my own devices at this point, like on Saturday morning, I listen to like film scoring music, or, you know, yeah, minimal. I listen to Steve Reich, right? Like I'm like totally there and like, please don't play me any melodies or any words or any drums. <laughs> Just or, or drums too. It's interesting. I, as I've gotten older, and like I said, I am a writer. I used to put music on, like, you know, obscure uh, indie bands from New Zealand, and I would write while listening to The Chills or something. Right, right. Now, I can't listen to, if I'm writing, I have to listen to Steve Reich. I have to listen to cinematic stuff with no lyrics. It's exactly it, me. It's too intrusive now. Yeah. I, I get pulled out. Um, either I get really interested in in it. So, like, yeah. if I'm listening to something, I'm I'm going, wow, that song is cool. I don't want to be thinking that song is cool while I'm working. And by the way, a lot of the reason I listen to music is to get out of my mind, right? So I do not want to be, music is is a momentary, like when I'm paying attention to the thing that just happened, I'm missing the thing that's happening now. So I have to be present in the moment to, to you know, to do a lot of the things that I really like doing. And that means if music keeps snagging me and holding me back, like songs will, I, I basically don't want to listen to that when I'm trying to be in the moment. So the Steve Reich stuff, like the moment is happening. You don't even know, to, know that it happened until it's over already. You know right. what I mean? Like those slow changes, those phase things that he did. I love that stuff. I'm inside
So you can still be amazed. You don't you don't listen to music, pop music like a technician. You can still be a fan and still be blown away. Totally, totally love. There's things that I just love. Um, I mean, mostly like for me right now, like I'm, I go, I, I sort of whipsaw back and forth between like musically, it's not that interesting. So for me, a lot of it is about the production. Yeah. Um, where I'm listening to sort of the sonic stuff that's happening, it's production and arrangement, but a lot about the like, like a band like Sylvanesso, right? And how they they use like all these samples, so everything is original. Like you can't. I did a sound alike for a Sylvanesso song because I was trying to like copy what they were doing just to understand how they got those sounds. And I mean, they're they're like all samples that are manipulated, right? So you can't. It's really hard to reproduce a Sylvanesso song. And I think, like, I love that. You know, I, I like when somebody has, like Bonnie Vare too, that new song with Dion that, I mean, that song is just, he's got all that distortion on the chorus. I mean, yeah. he's really playing with these sonic things that feel more emotional almost than the music. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, it's like how love like that can distort your perception, you know? I mean, it's like, I see it as prosody, you know, okay, all the way through. Like, and so I feel like for me, that's a, a lot of what's interesting to me. And that's why I listen to so much hip hop too, in that where we have this rhyming stuff going on, like that 24 Golden song where he's got this, he's creating these rhythms with these rhymes that are placed in, you know, that are grouping the words into a rhythmic subcategory, right? So there's a long phrase, but there's internal um, rhyme placements that are literally doing rhythmic subdivision. And I just feel like this is something we don't, we have never seen in music. Yeah. Hip hop has transformed freaking music by using rhymes and assonance and consonants as a way to create rhythms in another level of rhythm. That is unheard of, you know? So, like, to me, I just go, whoa, like, when I listen to it and I go, holy shit, if I just pay attention, a little deeper attention, I start looking at the, the, the sounds and I, and I go and I notice the subdivisions and then I'm gone. Like, I literally will, like, get the lyric and look where the rhymes are and color code them and just nerd out. And then every time I listen to it, I love it so much because I see the, the depth of it, you know. So you can pull it apart. You can pull apart the composition and then think about the recipe, about how it was cooked and how it was put together and appreciate it even more. I mean, I do that with, with prose writing too, you know, like I just did it with a Lori Moore story. You know, yeah. I was like, how in the hell did she do that? Right. What is happening in the story? And so I basically made like a little thing of like each paragraph is sort of a, a scene, you know, and just kind of looked at how she changed the perspective and the point of view. So, you know, I'm a nerd. I'm a super heavy nerd. Right. <laughs> like really, really nerdy. I do that for fun. <laughs> well, and by the way, Lori Moore has one of my favorite lines ever. She said, um, in a story, she says, when you're having an affair, it's like having a book out from the library for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> Dude, she's the best. She's so like good. one of my favorite, favorite, favorite writers. She's I so love good. her so. But there are some people that I look at and I go, I don't know how to pull this apart. Um, I don't know how to take this apart and, and put it back together again and understand the brilliance behind it. Some people defy 
that sort of scientific. My, 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 in, my, um, my inquiry didn't really reveal much in terms of, you know, I mean, it was interesting looking at the, the point of view and how she uses point of view and in, in her writing, but I, I was unable to sort of put my thumb on exactly what it was that had gotten me so moved by the story, right? When I broke it down, it was just little pieces. Like somehow there was some kind of alchemy in there that I, I wasn't able to identify. <laughs> yeah. There's some magic that you can't quite, you can't quite uh, label, you know? Yeah. And that happens a lot with music too. You know, It does. And, and it also makes me think about what, I remember I, I'm a little bit haunted by this, so I talk about it a lot. But Billy Bragg years ago told me that he still loves The Clash, but he but he it doesn't make him feel the way he felt in 1979. But there are still songs that do make me feel that way. Me Some too. of it lapses into obsolescence, and you go, well, like my my joke is that not loving a song the way you used to is like not being sexually attracted to someone anymore. It's like it's just gone, it's just, and that right. happens, right? But then there's other stuff that transcends. Like I think anything from you know, some Sam Cooke to um, even to like stuff by, by Patty Griffin. Like it just doesn't age for me at all. Yeah. It just is as immediate as ever. And that might be the magic you're talking about where it's like, I don't know what makes a song um, become obsolete to my heart and at stay urgent to my heart. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. It's interesting. I mean, do you think it's production? Like, you know, because I was funny. It was funny. I've been listening to the, to the re-release of good, clean fun. And I'm kind of going like, well, what for me, it's so quintessentially 80s. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Now, the songs, I can still perform Girls Like Me and it still, you know, it freaking slams. But somehow when I listen to the record, I'm always like, okay, this like is so 80s, you know? So it has this this thing of being, I feel like, I mean, I don't know about London Calling. Like, I I didn't have that kind of relationship with London Calling anyway. So, I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't like, holy shit, this is it, you know? Um, So I didn't, I never had that. So, but there have been songs that at the time seemed crucial that now aren't crucial anymore. Like, I would say, like, some Cindy Lauper, like, time after time, right? Like, which I thought, you know, I always cried, and now I don't cry when I listen to it, and um, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I believe in magic, you know? I do. I believe in magic. I believe in that that there is, if we do it right, we capture something in a song that every time you play the song or, you you know, you you're opening the the box, the Pandora's box, right? And it comes out and it gets you, you know? It's like yeah. you can use it as a key to get back where, to a feeling, you know? Getting back to that feeling, you're right. That's it. I mean, like like the version of Bring On A Home To Me for Sam Cooke live at the Harlem, it's like the worst bootleg recording, but it's also the best. Yeah. So raw and so beautiful. Or uh, Moses by Patty Griffin, very spare. Oh, great song. I mean, it could be. It could be the production. It could be a number of elements. Um, but I don't think I can ever place my finger on what that magic is that makes something transcend time and space and your aging heart. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and so I was listening. So I have. I also made a playlist recently because we we've been talking a lot. Um, my fam, my brothers and sisters and I have been doing Zoom calls and we've been reminiscing about, we lived on Fulton Street in San Francisco for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And we had wild parties and we were all in our teens and we were like the crazy haze kids. 
and we were we were reminiscing, and I made a playlist, um, a Spotify playlist of the songs that we were listening to, the music that we were listening to during that time, which was everything from like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and the band to BB King and you know um, Janis Joplin and. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and you know Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, and also we were super into jazz and fusion. So you know we had a bunch of jazz fusion, and then I mean it was just like incredible. And I was listening to it, and I literally like that Crosby, Stills, and Nash record with Deja Vu. Right, I still got goosebumps from, (laughs) from their version of Woodstock. Right. And like, I was just saying that, I was just going, this is 50 year old music, you know, that somehow for me still felt, I don't know, nobody else will probably feel that way, but there's, there's things that just still rock it right into my body and make me feel exactly the way I felt the first time I listened to it. What is your relationship with the past? Because you seem like you're good with making decisions of, I'm going to move to Boston. Now I'm going to leave Boston. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get rid of that. Um, now th- there's this reissue. And, and so you're dealing with like listening to the past. We're talking it's about- so weird. <laughs> weird, right? I, I've gotten to this place in my life where I'm trying to be careful not to have too much of a love affair with the past because I feel you can. You might want to start- you, This is the biggest problem that we get have as we age. It's so like, think- oh, it was so much better then. Yeah. Right, right. But now is not so shabby. You know, it's good to be alive. It's good to be doing new things. I'm fucking fascinated. Right? I'm fascinated. Yeah. It's, I've never even dreamed of, of living through something like this. And not just the pandemic and not just Mr. 45. <laughs> you know, all of it. I mean, technology. Yeah. We, have, we don't even have any idea what's coming at us. You know, t- t- AI you know, virtual reality, dude, it is going to, you think it's been weird so far. (laughs) Just wait. I mean, you can just see the the potential, you know? Oh yeah. I'm I'm into it. I like the future. (laughs) I do too. And I'm, and I'm trying also not to be future blind. I'm trying to think a few years ahead. Right. Right. Um, Yes. I think I was guilty for many years of sort of fetishizing the past. And I think that's a dangerous thing to do. I think you have to sort of be careful not to to put both feet in that that place. This is interesting because part of the reason that I wanted to move back was to sort of be among my people again. And my family lives there, but also, I mean, I can still sell out a show at the Sweetwater in Mill Valley. And, you know, like, (laughs) so I want to do that except for, there's this other part of it. It's like, you can't go back. You know, you can't go backwards. I said it in the inside doubt. Like one of the first songs I ever wrote, it's like, I, I fuck up and you know, I, I, but I move forward, you know, I do not go backwards. And so for me trying to re erect a part of my life that just happened before this, I'm not sure is, is right. You know, that's one of the reasons that I, have decided to stay here longer. Um, just kind of like don't really know what to do, but you know, I, I know that I don't want to go backwards. I want you to write your memoir and call it, I fuck up, but I move forward. Yeah. I mean, basically that would be the, if not the title, it would be the, you know, whatever you call it, the cult, the subtitle. The subtitle. Yeah. You said something uh, a while ago that I wanted to sort of revisit 
because a lot of people who listen to the program are probably the age of your students. A lot of people, I, I talked to a guy a year ago and he said he was 19. He said, I'm, I'm going to form a band. How, do you think I can make some money doing it? And I thought, yikes. You talked about how people make money in pop music in 2020. And my question to you is going to sound really stupid, but how do they? How do you make money in, in, in this business anymore? All right. Well, there is a lot of money in this business. Um, first of all, you can have a pretty darn good life if you get in the right band in your town. I mean, so like one of my dear friends is Eric Schramm and he's in this band called Pop. What's it called? Um, oh my God. It's the name of a candy. Um, anyway, it's like a, it's basically like a cover band. Um, and he was in that Neil Diamond band, right? Um, oh, the the cover, the Neil Diamond cover the thing? The Neil yeah. Diamond cover band that sort yeah. of look like Neil Diamond. They have yeah. like the big sideburns, the mutton chops and all that. And so like he makes great freaking money. And, and you know, people disparage this. I, I Every time that I needed money, I, I'm like, I will do anything in music. So just like anything that you throw at me, I'll do. So I played a ton of freaking weddings and corporates and you know i used to play george lucas's birthday party every year you know that kind of stuff and um so you know he makes great friggin money or made until now now we're in sort of a shit show with with um live music basically and the clubs are going out and you're just really not gonna be able to do it but you know the the music industry oddly the the record labels after all of that speculation, the record labels are making more money than ever. And I could go into a really boring diatribe about why that is, but it has a lot to do with the deals that they made with streaming platforms to have licenses. And they, they made better deals for masters than they made for copyright holders, just in short, because they were proprietary. So what happened is the record labels somehow managed to land on their feet over and over and over again and are turning millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of profit on acts like Ariana Grande and Post Malone and Billie Eilish and you name it, right? So that world is still generating insane amounts of money, right? And I have a ton of kids who go out to LA. The kids that I work with are songwriters and producers, go to LA either start writing and getting covers, you know, get cuts with little up and coming artists or write with up and coming artists. Amy Allen, a kid who graduated in 2015, wrote Back to You for Selena Gomez and then wrote that Halsey song without without me, right? And this is a kid who, you know, I she went I was there and she did direct a study with me and now she's, you know, she's made a ton of money and she's putting out her own record with Warner Brothers. So there's a lot of money, all right, in the music business. It's just that it's been concentrated, just like in the rest of our society, in a very small um, stratum, right? right? Instead of it being democratized as we thought that it would, it's still concentrated in that really narrow stratum. Um, incredible money in making music for visual content. So, what emerged as a prime source of money for both old, like sort of old acts like, like me and then for young 
writers, as long as you own your masters and you own the the stuff that you're licensing, is getting your music licensed in film and TV, either as source music, background music, for advertisements. Like there's millions of of sync opportunities. It's called sync because it has uh so and then production, you know, there's there's production is a huge world. And um, you know, there's there's sound design. There's sound design for in enormous amounts of applications, you know, for movies and and theaters, like there's actually live sound design. So there's this incredible um, designing live experiences. Like there's people who design electronic shows um, for somebody like um, Imogen Heap, right? So they have the whole, like she has the gloves and the, the, the gestures <laughs> that change the, and the light shows and all of that stuff. So I mean, there's a ton of money. What happened is that the money for the guy who plays the $75 gig and the $150 gig down at the local, whatchamacallit, isn't there, right? So okay. that, by the way, a, a local gig still pays between $75 and $100. Is that right? 50 fucking years. Like, well, my gig, I mean, I pay great because I, because I can draw enough people and charge enough money to pay my musicians. But if I was doing it every weekend, I wouldn't, right? So part of that for me is just that it's more like a big party. And I think um, I think the reality is, is that the clubs, you know, the clubs can't, the clubs won't pay it. The customers want to go for free. Um, and so we're back, you know, it's that same thing. It's just that sort of, People are, there's so much other stuff to do on Friday night. You can't, it's not just everybody goes to the bar anymore, you know. Right. It's everybody goes to the movies or stays home and watches seven trillion TV shows and <laughs> watches live concerts on TV in yeah. the comfort of their, of their home theater with their sound bar, you know. So like we're, we have this incredible period of, of just saturation of, of recreation and entertainment that I think has just sort of cut out the little guy, you know. And also the rewiring of the brain. I don't think we're meant to binge. Like in the old days, you know, if, if there was a show we liked in the 80s, you had to wait a week to see what right. would happen. Right. Well, uh, home. De- I mean, uh, HBO still does that. They still <laughs> does, do that. Oh yeah, they you wait the, for the week for the next thing to drop. Wait, and, th- and I think that's good because I think that your brain is meant. Like one of my students, um, we've been rewired, and I think that I, I had one of my students listen to a song. We were doing a, a literary analysis. And I gave him a Public Enemy song that the rewrite, like the updated version of Fight the Power. And I said to her, "What do you think?" And she said, "Well, I've only listened to half of it." And I thought, "It's a four-minute <laughs> song." Like, how could you only listen to right. like, what do you, what did you, so I'll listen to the rest of it later. And I thought, so you got two minutes in and you went, nah, I'll get to, I'll, you know. So the fact that, that people can't even get through a four minute song anymore worries me. I worry that our brains have been rewired as the industry. We're talking about the industry resetting itself. And um, yeah, I, you have to have a hook. It's like every eight seconds. Yeah. You can't, you can't not. I mean, I tell the students, I go, if you want to write hit songs, you literally have to do something new every 10 seconds. That's crazy. Well, it's, you know, and listen to the, to listen to the songs. There's, there's ear candy. There's constant. It's like constant. It would be like if all day long I gave you an M&M every, every 10 minutes. 
<laughs> after after a week, you'd be like, "Where's my M and M, man?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I would, <laughs> of course, I would. And I, I just I think that that's the rewiring of the of that sort of of the brain of the way we think about music of the way we think about media. Um, yeah. Someone told me years ago, he 15 years ago, he said, spinning media is about to die, just like physical media. And he was right. But I also think media in many ways is dying in the sense, in a weird way, and it's also thriving, but in the sense that people don't have the patience anymore to listen to an album. Front no. We right. were t- I was just talking to another student about one of my students and we were talking about, he said he was going to release an album. And I said, I'm just going to tell you some- the, the truth of this is that you, if you want to do 12 songs on an album, the last six aren't going to get listened to, right? right. I said, you, you might be better off making an EP and really focusing on making those six songs bang, you know, um, just in terms of what you're going to spend your time and money on you know, and in terms of getting like attention for it. And he goes, well, it's sort of a story. And I was like, but who, you know, I mean, but here's the thing, you know, you're talking to a woman who reads a novel a week, you know, I don't have any problem reading for three hours at a time. Like I literally, if it was up to me, I'd be in bed right now. <laughs> 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 reading Sue Miller's book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that I don't love you. I do. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a total, like, I'm a total heart, but that's because I was raised without, and you know, there was no TV. Remember, you, I used to wake up in the morning and there was no freaking TV until seven o'clock. Like there would be the test pattern. Like you, right. there was only one channel. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so I, w- I spent many, many summers lying on my bed all day reading, right? Um, and I, my daughter doesn't read, you know, I don't know very many kids in their 20, in their early twenties who read. No. I mean, when you see someone sitting on a, on a bench, reading a book, you think how exotic. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Let's talk. (laughs) What planet did you come from? Yeah. I know there, there's, we used to have to work for it, you know, where, um, like I remember I'd stay up late to watch Letterman. I would, you know, I'd wait in line. Saturday night live. Saturday night live. I would I would wait in line at the Berkeley Square to see the Meat Puppets for an hour and a half, you know. God, um, the Berkeley Square! Don't you miss that dump? You miss that dump. <laughs> yes, I love that place. And I also, and you know what else? Slim's just closed. I'm gonna really miss Slim's. So love Slim's. Oh. And I remember when it opened, when Boz, because Bob Brown, who was my manager at the time, was involved in the financing and opening that. They opened Slims, and I was just like, "This place is the schniz, man." Loved it. I know. Saw I said, so many great shows there. Played so many great shows there. What was your favorite show you saw at Slims? <sighs> you know, I think it might have been Sunvolt. Yeah. Just because I had never, I didn't really know Sunvolt, and when I. I was, it was one of those things where you're watching and you're going, oh my God, like this is music that I can't believe exists in the world. And I'm going to go be Sunvolt. <laughs> yeah. I want to eat Sunvolt and turn it into my body. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're, they're, yeah, they're incredible. Um, though I I saw some amazing shows at, at Slums as well. And it's, you know, all these clubs that aren't, aren't able to, to sustain what about you? What's happening to you creatively in in the current moment? Like, what is your what is your daily practice? What how are your chops? What are you doing creatively, dude? I have I have a no 
no writing chops left. I'm basically trying to take myself back down to the studs so I can start over. Here's what happens when you're when you're a professional songwriter. You get this like formula, like this way of approaching writing songs, which is like, okay, so first I have to come up with like, so you come up with a title or a hook or central idea for it. So you're starting from lyric, which like I'm a musician and that is not a natural thing for me, right? When I But when I did discover writing from title, I discovered that it was it was faster. It was a smoother process, right? So faster isn't necessarily better, right? right? There isn't that feeling of sort of uncovering like a lost city when you're when you write from a title. You know what I mean? Which I really miss. So and then you're like, okay, I'm gonna put together a chorus, you know. So you put together a chorus and then you write out from there. I mean, to me, this is um the way that most pro writers write, which and it's it's because it's efficient in it. Um, it allows you to keep from making sort of fatal errors early in the process, and but it also makes you write a certain kind of song, right? And um, it makes you write a song that's focused, that's lyric focused, that has a chorus, you know. So the subtext there is, I mean, it's very difficult for me to get out of the habit of thinking about hooks, about thinking about writing great melodies that people are going to like and be able to sing along with and all that stuff. And basically, I need to unlearn that process for where I am and what I want to do in terms of my writing right now. So I'm not, what I do is I just basically, I, I write Every morning, I usually write a poem every day. Huh? I got in the habit of writing these 10 lines. This is from Pat Patterson's poetry class. 10 lines, 10, 10 syllables a line, no rhyme. Just writing these, like sort of capturing these, like, blah, this is what happened, or this is what I saw, or this is what, this is what occurred to me, or whatever it is. So that's just sort of like getting it out. I journal. I usually write a, a, like a half of a song lyric or a couple of lines a couple times a week. I practice piano, I practice guitar, and I make sound alikes. That's all I do. I haven't I haven't really haven't written. I wrote a song about a month ago that I just basically just think it just feels still feels like I'm fighting with myself. So I have to get I have to get myself into a zone where I'm not tr- I I got to find a way to stop trying to write good songs, right? You can't you can't think about writing good songs when you write songs. You can't. You can't be thinking how do how do I make this song that people like? Like right. that can't be what you're thinking, right? Because if if it's what you're thinking, for me for a long time I was writing it for me to like it. I for me. But now like I don't even know how to decide whether I like something. It's also mitigated by the you know what I do for a living, where I listen to popular music and I think all the time about how to teach kids how to write music that both is expressive and unique to them and can function in the commercial marketplace so that they don't graduate from Berkeley and not have a way to make a living. Right. Because you can't go, hey, write whatever you want and hopefully things will fall together for you. No. Because 99.9999999% of the time, nothing fucking falls together and your life falls apart and you get a job as an insurance broker. So my thing with this is calculate, you know, figure it out. But the, for me, the calculation has destroyed my ability to do it for purely pleasure. And that is something that I have to find a way back to. Yeah, and that's a, a sort of a compartmentalizing of intellectualizing and creativity can't they can't know each other during the process. I kind of agree that that I think if my mind inter intrudes upon my my 
attempt to find a lost city inside myself. I, I think it it makes it's like, well, maybe we should go down this road and then we'll hopefully we'll find the city, you know, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> there is no city down that road. You know, that's that's the, that's the, the in, innate problem. Yeah, right. And you don't want to think about it too much because then it starts to feel like a thing and, and you don't yeah. right? It's a, it's a, it's, you know, I mean, I believe in intentionality when you're learning to write songs, but I, I would like to lose some of my intentionality. Yeah. But it's, I mean, but you are being very creative still every day. You're do you're in the, you're in the mix. It's not, it's not like you're, you're away from creativity. So you are still doing stuff. I'm super lively um, with, I mean, for me, like I said before about stopping time, like I like playing piano. I, I play Chopin and Bach, right? If I can't play anything else. A lot of times I figure something out that I heard on TV. Like I hear, figure out a lot of film music mm. um, or like I just figured out the thing from the crown, that Martin Phipps stuff. I figured out a bunch of those on the piano. Like <laughs> it looks beautiful, you know? Yeah. And so I just, um, but most of the time I like just trying to play Chopin and just trying to be in that moment, you know, of, and there's a technical problem where, you know, my hands will slip or it's too fast or I forget I have a blank on this one part or the fingering, I, I unlearn my fingering or whatever it is. And that sort of process of just engaging with that mechanical of a thing helps me stop thinking, you know. Yeah, part of it is just not thinking and letting it letting it visit you and let it, letting it just happen. Um, it also feels sometimes that you do, you speak of a lost city, Sometimes it feels like you, you get your granted entrance into this kind of city. Because um, when I'm writing, I'll find like you, there's a flow state that happens where you lose track of time and, and you don't know what's going on. And then you come out of it and you're like, holy shit, this, I love this. Yeah. But, when you're, but when that doesn't happen and you're sort of like knocking on the door and they won't let you in, it's a totally, the product is totally different from what you create. Totally. And, and I, I hate it. Like I hate it too. For me right now, when I write those and you know, it's, there's this whole thing of just like, we'll turn something out and don't worry about whether it's good or bad. But when I turn it out like that, I hate it and it makes me mistrust myself. And so, you know, I just feel like it's funny because I have had so many conversations with so many writers earlier in my life where they would say this kind of stuff. And I'd be like, don't be silly. You know, you just get in the position, you just get in the position and you just write. And in some days you're going to write something good. And some days you're going to write something bad, but there is this thing of like chasing it too hard and, um, and scaring it off. And I, I do feel like, like Elizabeth Gilbert did all that, that she had that great Ted talk about, about creativity and, you know, how, how to sort of court it and how to appear, you know, how to, and, and that I think is the thing. It's like, there's this, but I've been doing that practice on myself. I've been tricking myself into creative spaces for, for so long that none of my gambits was paying off and I really, and I can't, you know, it's pot doesn't work. Like there's no drug that gets me there. Like, it's just, it's kind of like, here you are, you know, you're looking in the mirror. There you are, bitch. You're still you, you know, and like, you're still fighting, you know, but that's, that's all I can say. It's, it's very frustrating, but at the same time, it, I have a lot of respect for creativity and for, um, for anybody who does it. I, I think it, it puts you in a, you and I are in a group, you know, we're in a group of people who live this, you know, and 
and do not do it for any reason other than that living it is the only way to live in that I, I believe in, you know, um, even if it means I don't write a song for six months and that's what it fucking means. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting for me, like I have a really hard time. Like if I, if I was standing in your studio now and I looked at it, if I close my eyes, I can't see it. I'll be able to see one little thing. It's like a keyhole. I have this really strange thing where my brain doesn't allow me to see things. And, but if I am, going to sleep at night or waking up in the morning and I'm not thinking, I can see huge panoramas. And so when I, for example, if I have to go to a department meeting, right, and I'm totally bored, I'll start writing and I compl- I crush it. Every time I'm in a department meeting, I write amazing stuff. But if I sit down <laughs> with the intention to do it, right, it's almost like the conscious brain has to be pushed away somehow, but not in a way that it's conscious of being pushed away. It's like that whole, th- I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but like, I'll be working on a lyric problem, you know, it's like, I don't know, I can't make it fit or whatever. And I'll, I'll, I'll get up to go and take a shower. And in the shower, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the second that I release the pressure, but the pressure has to have been applied before. Right. Right. So like, it, it's not just, there's no pressure. It's that I tried I was trying and I was like hurting myself trying and then I get up and it comes or I wake up in the morning and it's like, Oh, I could do that. You know? And so that I really believe in, I don't know how, you know, and it's so, Oh God, it's so frustrating. I'm partly because I work. So I, I mean, you're in the same world I'm in. I work literally this we're in registration right now. We're registering for spring. And so, I mean, I literally work, you know, I take a walk every morning and then I work from 10 to or 1030, sometimes until seven. Wow. That's... Um, with breaks, you know, but like ba- basically working all day. And so there isn't like a lot of time. And one of the things I figured out about being creative is you really need to get almost bored. Do you know what I mean? Um, like you have to get sort of stuck stop having a linear, like first this, then this, then this, then this, like today I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And, you know, I have my to-do list. My to-do list keeps me from going, huh, I wonder what would happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's that whole part of it too. Um, That's kind of why I don't want a job anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, sometimes work can get in the way of that. I also like what, what Amy was saying from the Indigo Girls. So she was saying like the slump is part of the process too. Yes. Right. She's so right. That that part of grinding and trying to do it and having it not happen is so much a part of the release of getting up and going, I got it. Eureka. You know, so I feel like it's just, it's a process. That's Twyla Tharp talks about this in her book too, about what the creative process is. And your job is just to set up the space for it to happen and then court it, you know, um, like you would a, a person you were trying to seduce, you know? Right. Well, you don't get to take that shower unless you've been doing the hard work to begin with, right? right? Exactly. Shower, the shower epiphany won't happen if you haven't Correct. been sweating in the in Correct. The chair. Or get it, you know? So so you have to do the grinding. The grinding is the pre prerequisite for the, for the revelation. Yeah. I wish there was an easier answer, but you got to do the grinding. Yeah. Well, hi. Welcome to life on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Bonnie. I know that we talked uh, before the interview started about you coming back to California and us playing some tennis. So I hope that happens. Um, but in the meantime, so much fun talking to you. 
Please loved come. talking to you today. I really had so much fun. I was, you know, it was, it's because I was expecting like more of an interview, you know, but that was like a conversation and it's really nice to have that kind of conversation that feels organic and natural and yet sort of gets through, you know, all the, all the stuff and that, that talk about creativity and that's, that's really, I, I don't think I've gotten that deep in an interview in a long time. So thank you. I love Bonnie Hayes. Wasn't that great? She's the best. We're going to bring her back. She's so much fun to talk to. Uh, the remastered version of Good Clean Fun is out via Blixa Sounds. Get it. It's filled with, uh, with treats. You're going to love it. You get the original album, totally remastered, sounds better than ever. Uh, you get the brand new girl EP, which is six songs. You get uh, a demo from Bonnie's band, The Punts. And there are some unreleased uh, other demos on there that nobody's heard until now. So lots of stuff. It's a total of like 21 songs. Get it from Blixa.com or just go to your local record store. Get it there. They're going to love you for it and you're going to love having it. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. You can also email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Go to BombshellRadio.com, find out what makes our radio station tick, and don't forget that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, you know, leave a little rating for us in the form of as many stars as you can spare, and, you know, a nice comment or two uh, would be lovely, and, uh, and tell a friend, or... Tell people that aren't your friends. Maybe this podcast will make you friends. Maybe this podcast will bring the world together. Too grandiose? Perhaps, but I'm going to go with it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Girls Like Me by Bonnie Hayes. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, bringing this world a little bit closer together with each episode <laughs> right here on Bob Shell Radio. They got